You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. In this episode, you will hear from Stanton Friedman, a leading researcher on the Hill Encounter. A few months after I interviewed him, he passed away at the age of 84. I had a thoroughly enjoyable 45-minute conversation with him, during which he answered all my questions at length and gave me a good-natured hard time about my skepticism. I know his passing is a loss to the UFO community, and I feel fortunate to have had the chance to chat with him. October 14, 1969, Marjorie Fish speaking. My qualifications to do this research, I've had uh, one course of an, in astronomy in college about 20 years ago, which doesn't amount to much, except it did show me star placement. And I have quite an interest in it since childhood, but my main interest has been in biology and anthropology. My degree was in sociology. I went back for my teaching credits later. I also had what amounted to the pre-med course with a great interest in biology. Being passion is anthropology. It makes um, ufology so interesting when you can consider how many different kinds of cultures there might be and add to this a different uh, biological background, which would lead into even more complex and far-reaching cultural differences. Aspects are highly intriguing, to say the least. Betty Hill recalled being shown two objects while she was on the spacecraft. The first was a type of book containing alien symbols. We looked at this in the previous episode. The second object was more compelling, and it prompted exhaustive research. Proponents of the Hill story point to it as evidence that they were, in fact, abducted by aliens. This object came to be called the star map. I'm Toby Ball. This is Strange Arrivals. Episode 4, Zeta Reticuli. Betty and Barney Hill reacted very differently during their abduction experience. Barney spent much of the time in a daze, unresponsive to Betty's pleas. His hypnotic recall suggested that he regarded the experience as something to be endured, and he kept his eyes firmly shut for much of the ordeal. Betty, on the other hand, told of being energized and engaged. In particular, she carried on a conversation with one of the aliens whom she called the leader. She says she asked the leader two things. One was for a souvenir. 
the leader gave her the book with the alien symbols and then, to her frustration, took it back again. The second thing she asked was, where are you from? Here's Betty from her hypnosis session on March 14th, 1964. He went over across the room to the head of the table and there was, he, he did something, it wasn't like a draw. He sort of did something in, in the metal of the wall. There was an opening and he pulled down a map and he asked me had I ever seen a map like this before and I walked across the room and I leaned against the table and I looked at it it was a oblong map and he said that the heavy lines were trade routes. And then the other lines, the other line, the, 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 the solid lines were places they went occasionally. And he said that The broken lines were expeditions. Betty asked the leader to point out where he was from. He responded by asking if she knew where the Earth would be on the map. Betty said that she didn't. The leader said that if that was the case, showing her his home star on the map wouldn't mean anything to her. And he put it away. And this, at first, was the whole story of the star map as recalled under hypnosis by Betty. Barney was not in the room at the time and did not mention it. Dr. Benjamin Simon, the psychiatrist who conducted the hypnosis sessions with the Hills, seems to have been intrigued by mention of the star map. Betty Hill from a 1987 presentation. Dr. Simon gave me a post-hypnotic suggestion. He said, if I wanted to, I could sketch the star map. But if I didn't want to, I didn't have to. So about two weeks later, I sketched it. You can easily find images of her sketch on the internet. It was drawn on a single piece of paper. 21 circles and dots, representing stars, are spread across the page, some connected with lines and others just by themselves. I wouldn't call the resulting map crude exactly. Maybe casual is a better word. Think about what you would draw if someone asked you for a map showing how to get from the nearest highway to your house. You'd probably get all the roads and turns right, but would the length of the roads be perfectly to scale? Betty's star map seems like a galactic equivalent of that kind of map. But that's not how everyone perceived it. A school teacher from Ohio named Marjorie Fish saw the star map and thought it might reveal where the aliens came from. She decided to try to figure out the vantage point in our galaxy from which the map was made. Working in the 1960s and 70s, Marjorie didn't have access to a computer to pursue her research. Her efforts were decidedly analog. 
and they were extraordinary. In her living room, she created a series of three-dimensional models of the nearby galaxy using beads hung from the ceiling by string. Here's Stanton Friedman, a nuclear physicist and ufologist. He was a leading researcher into the Hill story for 50 years and knew both Betty and Barney. And then a brilliant woman named Marjorie Fish did something nobody else had ever done. She built three-dimensional models of our local galactic neighborhood. Incredibly detailed work. I mean, her biggest model had 256 stars in it. That means you got to have the location of the star before you can build a model. Little beads hung on strings. That is tedious work. And the hard part at that time, because it's hard to measure distances, it's easy to measure angles. You know, where in the sky to look? That's a two-dimensional problem. But... How far away is it? Ah, we had lousy data. She got the best data available. She wound up building a total of more than 23-dimensional models and was able to find one and only one pattern that matched what Betty had drawn, angle for angle, line length for line length. The Milne Special Collections and Archive at the University of New Hampshire's Diamond Library has a number of photographs of Marjorie Fish's models. She either used cloth or paper to create a black background. A huge number of beads are suspended in air by strings attached to the ceiling. They look like super-thin icicles. Marjorie would examine the model from different spots and angles, trying to find one that matched Betty's star map. It was exacting work. To get a sense of how detailed her efforts were, we can listen to a recording she made in late 1969. During her work on her models, she engaged in a correspondence with a scientist named Richard Lee. In response to letters that he apparently wrote her with questions about her methods, she sent audio tapes. Most of the conversation is technical and sounds like this. Right now I'm in the process of going through the uh, Yale Trigonometric Parallax Catalog and pulling out all these stars in the parallax of 0.049 to 0.030. This would take all the stars from 65 light years out to 100 light years to supplement the Fleecy Catalog so that a model can be constructed of these stars. Now, uh, this is for my listing of stars that could have planets with life, so I'm not going to be including the stars brighter than F5. And the work was frustrating, too, because she was unable to find a match in her model for Betty's map. But then a scientific discovery suddenly unlocked the map's puzzle, and in the process seemed to suggest that it might truly have an extraterrestrial origin. Strange Arrivals will return in a moment. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. 
Millions of people have made the switch to Nick Sleek Proof Underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine washable, and great looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Marjorie Fish went to incredible lengths building complex models to try to identify the vantage point of the star map. Her efforts went unrewarded until new astronomical data became available and she updated her model. Kathleen Martin, Betty's niece and a UFO researcher. This one was after three additional stars were discovered by astronomers and she added them to the map and she changed the distance data on some of the others. And then in 1972, she had a match. To be clear... What Kathleen is saying is that Marjorie Fish was unable to find a model that fit the star map until three previously undiscovered stars were identified. Once she added them to her model, she had a match. The inference here is that there is only one way Betty could have drawn the map with those stars. That is if the map that she saw that night had information not known to scientists at the time. Could this be proof that the map was not of earthly origin? The next step was to have her work vetted for accuracy and to be verified by the scientific community. Here's Marjorie again from her audio correspondence. I had assumed that everyone in the field wanted to know where they came from. I put in cross-references and extra data so it could be spot-checked in a matter of an hour or two and thoroughly checked in about two days, point by point. The model could be built and checked inside of a week. Everything I've done can be checked. Since I've worked out all the methods, these could be followed and redone far easier than the first time while the method of attack had to be worked out. This is when Stanton Friedman was called in as a nuclear physicist and this was his interest in the case. He was able to find astrophysicists to vet Marjorie's work. It also ended up being 
done as a computer-generated analysis at Ohio State University. And what they discovered is that the two primary stars in the foreground were Zeta Reticuli 1 and 2 that are about 39 and a half light years away. Of course, one further away than the other, but they were only about a light year apart, which is fairly close. They were binary stars, but they could possibly maintain a stable orbit. So theoretically, planets would be able to evolve around those stars, just like we have with our sun in our solar system. Now that the stars had apparently been identified, more research could be done on the map. Betty thought that she might be able to use it to identify a purpose for the alien journeys. What we know about the universe is still all, you know, theory. We still don't know. You know, a lot of it's speculation. But the speculation is that there are 47 nearby stars that our astronomers believe have a sun and planets and conditions very similar to us. They could have advanced life. Now, I had 16 of those 47 stars on my map out of an area of about 200 stars in the sky. Uh, the broken lines were going to star systems which are younger than we are. And the heavy lines are going to sun systems our age or older. So it's looking, it looks as though they're going out into near nearby star systems, looking them over, finding out the stage of advancement of life. And if we're advanced enough, they come back and take another look. If we're not, if they're going to younger planets and they're not advanced, they go out on an expedition and they don't go back. Others, Stanton Friedman in particular, sought to support the star map with scientific credibility. As we'll see, that effort was met with significant pushback. I published her, her work in an article in UFO magazine, I guess it was, something like that. And then I convinced Terry Dickinson, who was editor of Astronomy magazine. I had met Terry, he had attended one of my lectures, and I told him about Marjorie's work and suggested he do an article about it. Well, he talked to a whole bunch of people. He wasn't going to accept what I said. I mean, that was interesting, and, uh, and he looked at what I had published. And then he wrote an article, he talked to Carl Sagan, he talked to a whole bunch of people. It got more response than anything they'd ever published. And he carried letters over the next year and finally put out a 32-page full-color booklet, the Zeta Reticuli Incident, and uh, sold 10,000 copies right off the bat, which was incredible. And then Carl Sagan's attorney uh, complained because Carl's name was on the cover with five other contributors. I think it was five, something like that, and threatened to sue him. Terry Dickinson, the editor of the fledgling Astronomy magazine, it had only been in existence for a year and a half, was clearly intrigued by the Hill's tale and found the evidence on balance to be inconclusive. His article ends with the sentence, the only answer is to continue the search. Someday, perhaps soon, we will know. 
This set off nearly a year's worth of argument in Astronomy Magazine's letters section. This level of interest led to the publication of the special edition titled The Zeta Reticuli Incident. It contained Dickinson's original article and then a series of letters and responses from scientists and other experts. Carl Sagan was the host of the phenomenally popular 1980s television show Cosmos. He was perhaps the most famous scientist in America. Marjorie felt that it would be important to bring the star map to his attention. Sagan presents a problem as, oddly enough, he's prejudiced against UFOs. This may work in our favor, if he's reasonably fair, although I've heard he may not be. If I can get him interested enough or mad enough to try to find flaws in the data and he can't and says so, his word as a respected scientist and as an opponent to UFOs will carry more weight. I found a few flaws in his work and that just might get him mad enough to want to find some in mine. She got Sagan's attention all right. He sent letters to astronomy, strongly taking issue with the star map's authenticity. When the special edition was published, he threatened to sue Astronomy magazine because he had not given permission for his letters to be reprinted. The issue was pulled from the shelves. The entire Zeta Reticuli incident seems to be something of a fondly remembered embarrassment to Astronomy magazine. In the online version of the original article, current editor David Eicher writes, Two things happened from this absurd tale. First, it sold lots of books. Second, it nearly ruined the reputation of this young astronomy magazine. He also says it may have cost Dickinson his job, as he was fired months later. Sagan, however, was not finished with his public criticism of the star map. His show, Cosmos, mostly focused on explaining space physics to a general audience. But in episode 12... Encyclopedia Galactica, he focused on the possibility of extraterrestrial life. In this episode, there's a brief segment about Betty and Barney Hill. You still don't believe it, do you? No, I don't. There must be a reasonable explanation. The episode begins with the bizarre dramatization of the Hill's UFO encounter. Betty and Barney are depicted driving in the rain and then lurching around in a stupor. It wasn't raining the night of the Hill's encounter, of course. The scene seems calculated to make them look as silly as possible. After this unpromising start, the episode cuts to Carl Sagan, looking dapper in a tan jacket and blue shirt. He walks along the side of a grassy hill. He's carrying a pad of some sort that turns out to have a simplified version of Betty's star map. This seems to be the real reason for bringing up the Hill's. He goes through a sequence of comparisons between Betty's star map and a map of the stars from Marjorie Fish's model. The first comparison is between the two maps with the lines indicating trade routes drawn in. Sagan says they look similar, but mostly because of the lines. He then shows the Fish map with a different set of lines drawn. Now, as you'd expect, the maps suddenly look very different. But he doesn't stop there. The real test, he says, is to take a look at the maps without any lines drawn in to connect the stars and compare them that way. When he shows these two maps, they don't look much alike at all. Looking at this last pair of maps, he concludes, as read by a voice actor, And then there's very little resemblance left. 
But these particular stars are selected from a large catalog of star positions. Our vantage point in space is also selected to make the best possible fit with the hill map. If you can pick and choose from a large number of stars viewed from any vantage point in space you want, you can always find something resembling the pattern you're looking for. I'm surprised that nobody could find a, a better fit to the hill map. Not surprisingly, proponents of the Hill story were not amused. In response to this episode, Stanton Friedman wrote a furious letter to the senior vice president of KCET, the public broadcasting system station that produced Cosmos. In it, he strongly objects to the portrayal of the Hill encounter and the segment on the star map. He says, It is part of a clear attempt to set science up on one side and believers, UFO enthusiasts, on the side of religion and superstition, and obviously not scientific. Friedman clearly objects to Sagan's tone regarding quote-unquote UFO enthusiasts. But the real question here is whether the map that Betty drew on a sheet of paper based on her hypnotically regressed memory provides an accurate tool to identify a distinct group of stars. I'd be willing to bet that if you took a handful of sunflower seeds, dropped them on a piece of paper, and marked their locations, that you would be able to find some place in the universe that matched that pattern at some range, at some orientation, at some scale. This is author Jim McDonald. I'd also be willing to bet that the, that the Hill map matches somewhere else in the universe as well or better than it matches uh, the Zeta Reticuli site. I'll also bet that that same map matches the pattern of some group of towns, cities, or villages somewhere in the world at some orientation, at some range, at some scale. Or that it matches the patterns in some body of water, islands in some body of water, at some range, at some scale, at some orientation. Unless and until we get to Zeta Reticuli and find little gray aliens, uh, it's nothing. It's dots on a piece of paper which you or I could make dots on a piece of paper. But it is not just the process of matching Betty's map to an actual part of the galaxy that causes problems. How accurate could the map possibly be? Think about how difficult it would be to precisely place a series of dots and lines on a piece of paper based on something you'd seen two years ago. Host of the Skeptoid podcast, Brian Dunning. The claim associated with this map is that she saw this on a wall in the spaceship and then two and a half years later remembered what it looked like and during the hypnosis session drew this out, drew these dots on a piece of paper. And based on that, we're supposed to believe that this is an absolutely accurate, you know, to the micron depiction of stars in our local uh, galaxy here somewhere. That's an awfully weak point right there. When you look at a map showing a dozen dots that are in a random, more or less a random distribution, are you going to be able to reproduce the positions of each one of those exactly more than two years later? That strains credibility right there. There is no reason to think her memory of that star map would be remotely accurate, let alone accurate at all. I mean, the brain simply doesn't work that way. Our brains are not digital recorders. Our brains are abstraction engines. When you look at a map that shows a dozen dots, the only thing your brain stores is that 
there were a dozen dots randomly distributed on that paper. And that's the best you can do when you try to reproduce it later. There's no reason to think that this map could have been an accurate representation of something she'd seen two years before. Carl Sagan and Jim McDonald may have been right that you can find matches for any random array of stars if you search enough. But with what we know now, that seems almost beside the point, because it is nearly impossible to believe that Betty could sketch a replica of the star map with the incredible degree of accuracy needed to identify Zeta Reticuli as the alien's point of origin. This doesn't prove that Betty wasn't shown a star map by the leader aboard a spaceship, merely that the chances that she could produce an accurate replica are essentially zero. Late in life, when more accurate data about the characteristics and locations of stars in our galaxy became available, Marjorie Fish concluded that her identification of Zeta Reticuli was not accurate. This view was mentioned in the obituary that ran when she died on April 8, 2013. Quote, Later, after newer data was compiled, she determined that the binary stars within the pattern were too close together to support life. So as a true skeptic, she issued a statement that she now felt that the correlation was unlikely. Even if you concede that using the star map to locate the alien's point of origin is a dead end, it doesn't really prove that the Hill's abduction experience didn't happen. There's still this. Betty and Barney were hypnotized separately and told similar, mutually supporting stories. Stories they hadn't remembered before their hypnosis sessions. How can you explain this if they hadn't actually been abducted during those missing hours? Next time on Strange Arrivals. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was written and hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Josh Thane, with executive producers Alex Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey. Betty Hill was portrayed by Gina Rakicki. Barney Hill was portrayed by Jason Williams. Special thanks to the Milne Special Collections and Archives at the University of New Hampshire, John Horrigan, WICH 1310 AM in Norwich, Connecticut, John White and David O'Leary, the executive producer of the History Channel's dramatic series, Project Blue Book. Learn more about the show over at GrimAndMild.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.